Welcome to the World of Intelligence, a podcast for you to discover the latest analysis of global military and security trends within the open source defense intelligence community. Now onto the episode with your host, Terry Pitar. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Jane's Podcast. I'm Terry Patar. Um, I'm joined on this podcast by a very special guest, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Langley Sharp. Langley, welcome and, and thanks for joining me on this podcast. Hey Terry, it's great to be here. Thanks very much for inviting me. I'll give a quick introduction for the audience to who you are and, and what the topic is, but we're going to be talking about leadership. The reason for that is that you've just published a book, The Habit of Excellence, Why British Army Leadership Works, which we'll come on to talk about. And just for everyone's benefit, your background is um, pretty stellar in terms of some of the achievements you've got listed against you. You're head of, currently head of the Centre for Army Leadership, part of the Royal Military Academy Sandhurst, and responsible for championing leadership excellence across the British Army. You graduated from Sandhurst two decades ago and had a career in the parachute regiment, serving in Northern Ireland, Macedonia, Afghanistan and Iraq. And amongst a variety of different roles, you led a counterinsurgency task force operation, commanded parachute regiment battalion and delivered the MOD's training program for the London 2012 Olympics, for which you were awarded an MBE. Congratulations. Uh, actually, there was one other thing I was going to mention about your background that I, I heard recently on your own podcast, on the, the Centre for Army Leadership podcast, which I'll give a plug to because you've got some fantastic guests that you've spoken to on there. And so anyone who is interested in this topic, we're going to talk about leadership. Definitely check that out because it's, it's an excellent resource. But you mentioned that something about from your background, not all of your experience in leadership has necessarily come from being in the army. Mm. And that as a, a younger guy, you, you trained in boxing and you trained with um, Brendan Ingle. Yes, I did. Yeah. Somebody you specifically mentioned. I thought I'd mention that because I know at least one person who listens to this podcast is a big boxing fan. Oh, right. And so that will definitely resonate with him. <laughs> so. Yeah, he's a phenomenal individual. Unfortunately, he's no longer with us, uh, Brendan, but um, yeah, trained many world champions. But I think, as I said the other day, he um, yeah, paid as much attention to, to uh, eight-year-old school kids as he did to world champions. And um, he literally changed people's lives through his work. So yeah, inspiring guy. Yeah, it's amazing. And I wanted, I wanted to sort of really kick off by talking about the book that you've written. So this has just come out now for anyone who's interested, The Habit of Excellence. And it was interesting reading through it. I mean, it was fantastic, I found, because there were so many quotable lines in there that I thought you could literally take away and just use almost in isolation. But placed within the context of how you've written this, I think it'd be really interesting to delve into the detail of what the book is, why, why you've written it, and um, how it references some of the army's own doctrine on leadership that you've obviously played a, a big part in in developing so maybe we can kick off there and sort of you could talk about the book and what your aims were in writing it yeah for sure um again thanks very much uh us on the podcast here it's, it's great to speak to you first in terms of the aims if, if i was to distill it down to one easy sentence it's it's to raise awareness of the power of leadership and i think in an organization such as the army that relies so heavily on leadership and we can talk about perhaps why that is the case later on but um you know we passionately believe in um the benefits that it that it brings and really it's directed leadership my boss general duncan caps would say it's our principal professional competence and it really underpins everything we do so it was really a chance for us and i say us because generally is it was a, a team effort as all these things are amongst the uh, the center for armor leadership team it was really an opportunity for us to share our lessons, the Army's lessons from 360 years of, as we framed it, the art, science and practical application of leadership. Not always getting it right. We still don't get it right today. We're not a perfect organisation. I don't think that such a, an organisation exists, but the importance of learning from where we got things wrong and indeed where we've had successes. And so really it was an offer to 
anyone from any walk of life at, in any leadership role, and let's face it, pretty much all of us are always in leadership roles of one description or another, it was a perspective to add to that uh, sort of continued debate about how important leadership is um, in all sectors. Really interesting. I think I think what I really liked about it was also how you've woven in some lessons from outside of the army and you've taken in some quotes and principles and things that other people mentioned. So, you know, there's quotes in there from you know the chief talent officer of Netflix, for example, and things like that, things which people might not expect when they first come to this book. And was that how important was that for you, bringing in those sort of lessons from outside of the army to also add into the work that you were doing? Or is that part of the day job anyway? It is part of the day job. I mean, the whole reason the Centre for Army Leadership, the small team that I worked for, was set up five years ago, was to uh, calibrate the Army's thinking and be the conscience for, for Army leadership. And of course, a lot of that involves understanding how others outside the military think about this subject and how they deliver leadership, albeit in very different contexts. But we've, um, as much as we feel that we've got uh, lessons to teach, we've equally got much to learn from from other people. And so, so absolutely, part of the day job is having those conversations with others from, from different sectors to get those perspectives. But including that in the book was really important as well, because whilst the context in which we operate is unique by the very nature of the profession of arms and, and the army and what we do, the fundamentals of leadership, how you look after your people, how you motivate people, how you build teams, how you deliver uh, successful outputs, missions, however you want to phrase it, is just as applicable in any other walk of life. And it's not necessarily about you know the ceo or the governor or you know the the team captain which often leadership is seen as a, a position of authority and whilst yes it's applicable to that it's just as just as relevant to you know people starting off on their leadership journeys you know junior interns whatever it may be it's just as, as applicable to all so i think whilst it was the book was an army perspective it was important to draw some of those parallels to show and illustrate the enduring nature of leadership yeah, that's that's really interesting to take those lessons and, and sort of distill them into what you're doing and, and le- try and learn from them. And some of the things you mentioned there are obviously applicable to a wide range of different fields and how people are, are seeking to lead others and, and lead themselves as well in those fields. But, you know, in terms of the looking at the sort of the subtitle of the book, Why British Army Leadership Works, what makes British Army leadership unique? That's a good question. And uh, this tested us quite a bit, actually, when we were doing the research uh, for this amongst the team. Um, What is it about military leadership, army leadership, and then British army that makes it unique? And it's trying to pare those down. I talk about this in the book. So I think there's two aspects I draw on here. One is our culture and really based on our regimental system. And the other is the profession of arms itself. And I'll start with with the latter, the profession of arms. And the very nature of our business is that uh, we fight wars, we fight wars on behalf of the, the nation. And with that comes responsibility and responsibility to um, put people into situations of mortal danger and the legal right and duty to apply lethal force. And so significant responsibilities come with that. And therefore you need and we demand good leadership to ensure that lethal force is applied appropriately and that people, um, whilst they're put in harm's way, they are protected as best as possible while still achieving the mission. And if you think about the sort of situations that you might envisage at the extreme army personnel being involved in, you know, our people were pushed to the physical and mental limits of their endurance. And to keep motivating people under such circumstances requires leadership. And a bit of a a sidetrack, the reason it's called the habit of excellence is because you can't turn on the attributes required in those moments of crisis when you're motivating people to 
keep pushing on, keep going forward when everything in their mind and bodies tell them to go in the other direction. Everything that is required for those moments of uh, crisis, so to speak, are developed in the you know the the days, the weeks, the months, the years, decades uh, be- beforehand. They've got to be habitual. They've got to be part of the way where you operate. So I think that profession of arms makes it unique. That context in and particularly in the land environment, because profession of arms clearly is relevant across the across the military. The army operate in the land environment, which, um, whilst leadership is absolutely as relevant in the air force and and the navy. In the army, it's very much a human endeavour, and by, by that I mean on land, face to face with your enemy or you know, other actors on the battle space. By nature, it's a lot more interpersonal. So that's the uh, profession of arms. It's about motivating people in a moment of crisis. And secondly, it's what makes us unique is, I'd say, our regimental system, which really sits at the heart of army culture. And again, other armies, other militaries have a similar regimental system. Uh, corps and regiments, but I think few have the the richness and the depth of of history, tradition, and ethos that pervades in the in the British Army, reaching back, as I say, 360 years. And for us to be able to draw on the richness of that history and those traditions and that ethos is really important to the way we do business. It's always a balance about how, how much you draw, and this is explored in the book, how much you draw on that, whilst knowing that the world around us changes. Um, so what endures and what changes is really important. But I think that that rich regimental culture is quite unique. I found that fascinating, actually, reading that part of the book and how you talk about the role that history plays. And I guess it's not always been useful. Sometimes it can be a little bit of an obstacle. But is that is, is that part of the reason why maybe the, the army's gone through this process of developing a leadership doctrine? And as you you mentioned, they're professionalizing and uh, the profession of arms, but there's been a professionalization of leadership as well, hasn't there, over the sort of past few decades, and I suppose encapsulated by the leadership doctrine that was first uh, published in 2016 and I think updated just this year. So maybe you can talk about sort of how important that's been in the evolution of leadership in the army. Absolutely. I mean, leadership itself has been professionalized, as you say, over decades, I'd say even centuries in changes to both successes and failures in the way we've operated, some of the operations we've conducted, or peacetime successes and failures, but also changes to society. So it's a constant evolution. And the army itself has become more professional. And one of the notable points in our history of that was in the 1980s when doctrine was introduced, which was codified how we conduct operations, how we fight wars. And that was the first time that the organisation had a, a sort of core centralised position on, on how it operated. There were writings before that, going back to sort of field army manuals, for example, on the turn of the century. But that was the first time the army really codified it. But that wasn't leadership. That was how we fought and how we operated. And as you say, it was only five years ago that our doctrine was produced for leadership. And that came off the back of a an institutional review in 2015, so the year before, that was directed by then CGS, now CDS, General Sinek Carter, who was reflecting back on some of our success and failures in Iraq and Afghanistan, also with an eye on the future and, and knowing that the army was about to undergo some substantial changes in order to deal with um, the changing threat environment. And he understood the importance of leadership to us as an organisation, and, and hence the review. And a number of recommendations came out, but one of those was to codify what um, leadership actually means to the army. And I think that why there was a hesitance before that is, I always say it's, um, it's summed up in General Field Marshal Bill Slim's quote about leadership is just plain you. And, and I think a lot of people have felt previously that, well, still do, and rightly so, that leadership is very personal. It's very individual. You bring your own personality and style, experience, et cetera, to, to your leadership. And that still stands, that's fundamental. But I think 
the the danger we had before is that with no centralized position it was hard to train and educate hold people to account reward people based on their leadership if, if there was no core position on what it actually means so, so i think for us it's been critical to that ongoing journey of professionalizing our organization but particularly our leadership but i would say we're still not there yet at the moment the doctrine which we refreshed only a couple of weeks ago actually um, version two was out it's a one-size-fits-all so it's a framework for thinking about leadership which is just applicable for our private soldiers as it is to cgs and the next stage which is work that is ongoing which perhaps we can come on to is developing broader doctrine to unpack what it means to lead at different levels of responsibility and different roles within the army. So provide that, that next stage of understanding for our people. So I actually, I actually did read through the doctrine and um, what I really liked about it was that you use actual case studies, some of which might make uncomfortable reading for people because they are pointing out things that have gone wrong and actually mm. things that leaders shouldn't do which I thought was really powerful, actually, in a way to make the doctrine something that people can actually apply. But how do you actually do, I mean, beyond just giving people case studies, how do you go about making that doctrine applicable for people? How do you get them actually doing it and living and breathing it rather than it just being a document that they might read and forget about? That's a great question. And it's difficult and it's a constant education. I mean, the doctrine itself, certainly the leadership doctrine, it was specifically designed to be accessible. So I often say it's... Um, Simplified, not simple. And, and therefore, it's, it's it's accessible to all ranks to understand it. And you're right to point out that we put a various case studies and vignettes in there that highlight when leadership doesn't go right. Because I think we often know that you learn probably more from mistakes and failures than you do from, from when you get things right. And actually, in the revised edition, we've brought forward toxic leadership as an example into the second chapter to really highlight some of the dangers of when leadership goes wrong and actually where it sits on a continuum. And so um, that was quite important. In terms of, to be fair, the doctrine is just a baseline of understanding. How do we inculcate that into our organisation? Ultimately, it's everyone's responsibility, which is a bit of a non-statement in many ways, but you know, everyone has a responsibility within the army to ensure that not only they are behaving in accordance to the standards we set, if you like, and the expectations that we have, but also that we're role modeling for others and in, in the chain of command. And a lot of that is done through our training and education pathways that provides the, the base knowledge and, and understanding and both our officers and soldiers go through a, a number of stages throughout their career where they get trained and educated on leadership as part of their wider development. But actually I always say it's in the, it's in the everyday is where you really learn. It's in the experience part, it's in barracks, it's on exercise, it's in training, and of course it's on operations. And hence why the doctrine really is just a framework and a baseline. It's up to the chain of command to be able to, to take that and inculcate that into everyday business and to make it applicable and real for people through example, ultimately. Yeah, that I guess is, is the only way you can really do it, isn't it? I suppose making it leadership by example and getting people to understand what it means in practice. In terms of just delving into some of the detail, though, I think it'd be useful for people who aren't familiar maybe with British Army leadership and, and the doctrine, et cetera, to just to touch on a few of the points I thought really stood out for me were that you mentioned three three sort of real important elements, values, mission command, and then this idea of service. Mm -hmm. um, maybe you could just talk a little bit about those and, and what those mean and, and, and what role they play in British Army leadership. Absolutely. So I 
I would say these are three elements that are the core of what British Army leadership's about, but equally they are just as applicable elsewhere. And I think if, you know, sort of key takeaways for, for others of other sectors and other walks of life, I think these would resonate well. The Army has their values and standards. Um, we have six values, courage, discipline, respect for others, integrity, loyalty and selfless commitment, and three standards, lawful, acceptable behaviour and um, totally professional. And these, if you like, were brought in in around 2000 or in 2000. These really provide a, the boundaries from which we expect our people to behave and to operate. Be who you are, bring all your talent and experience, but operate within these boundaries. And the role of the leader is to be an exemplar of those values and standards, one thing. So it goes back to our point there, it's about demonstrating by example, being role models. But it's also about being able to translate those, particularly the values, into everyday life. And that's where it goes back to our previous discussion just now about it's in the everyday, it's in the experience. Because value is always contextual and society is changing around us at pace. So it, it's the responsibility for the leader to understand how you apply those values in a particular context and be able to translate that to their people. But it's really about role modeling and setting examples of what good looks like and adhering to those, to those values. So bringing them to life so they're not just words on a page or on a you know, corporate brochure, so to speak. Mission command is our command philosophy brought in in the 1980s. And really, in, in simple terms, a commander can tell people what they want them to do and why, but not tell them how to do it. So, and letting the individuals that have to enact the mission to bring their skills, knowledge, experience to bear on the problem. And that creates speed of action a lot of people you know those that are listening to this from a military background would be quite intuitive to them but it empowers your people creates initiative speed of action and it lets the people on the ground nearest to the problem nearest to the fight in our in our language to be able to make the decisions at the point of contact so it's very much empowers your people but they do so understanding the intent of the commander the person with the authority and understanding why they are to achieve the mission there you have. I think that's really important what you mentioned there in terms of people understanding why, Absolutely. understanding the intent. Yeah, that's critical. Yeah, I, you know, gone are the days where you can just tell people what to do and expect right. them to get on with it. It doesn't work like that. Because uh, I, I think that's a really important point to touch on because I'm sure there'll be people who will look at the book and say, well, you know, it's different in the army because they can just tell people what to do and people are trained to follow orders. And But I think it's worth exploding that myth here. And, you know, as you said, it doesn't work like that. It doesn't work like that. I mean, and I guess part of, part of the, um, going right back to your first question, why the book, you know, part of it was just dispel myths about how leadership is enacted in the in the army. You can go back a, a couple of hundred years and you may see a, a you know, strict hierarchy with um, commanders issuing their orders and subordinates blindly following those orders. There are moments we still have a rigid hierarchy. We still have clear command and authority invested in people. And, we, and discipline is still part of army life. We rely far more on self-discipline than enforced discipline, but it still matters to us. And that's important at particular moments where that sort of more transactional leadership needs to occur, particularly at decisive moments in crisis. But that's pretty rare. And actually, leadership is a lot more, a lot more nuanced. It's about understanding your people it's about motivating your people it's about tapping into to their goals and their visions and developing your people building cohesive teams as i said before for a much more effective collective um, collective capability so yeah it's a much more much more nuanced than um, public perception can often be
Yeah, and I suspect actually that a lot of other organisations that are non-military organisations are actually more hierarchical than people think they are. You know, commercial organisations, businesses, you know, people tend to look upwards to see what's the intent here? What are the orders flowing down? What, you know, what am I meant to be doing? And they look up, you know, they do look to the more senior people in the organisation for leadership. So I don't think it's not a completely different world in that sense. It's not. And that, that hierarchy is important because that's about understanding who, who are the decision makers and who, who owns the responsibility at a particular point in time for making decisions. The key point is that what leadership enables you to do is to take your team and involve your team and all their talent and experience to support decision making. But there will come a point where the person, the man or woman that, that is in that position of authority has to make that decision and has the responsibility to own that and is held to account for for those decisions and being made. And you're absolutely right. Whilst our hierarchical system is is a lot more evidence and it's a lot more visual, if you like, particularly the fact that we wear uniform, we wear rank, it absolutely applies in many other sectors. Yeah, no, no doubt. And is there, is there a danger though, if, if say other organizations look at the mission command sort of principle and try and apply it in their organizations that, you know, you touched upon responsibility there. And is there a danger that if it's done badly, that it's a way for people at the top of a chain of command to abrogate responsibility and say, yeah. well, hang on, I've, I've, I've left you guys to figure it out. You know what you're doing. You're all, you're all leaders. So you, you sort it out. I'm going to be on the golf course. <laughs> is so, that, is, I mean, that's worst case scenario potentially, but. And that, that is, but, yeah. and you're right to point that out because that's a misunderstanding of mission command, because what's important in mission command is the ultimate responsibility still sits with the, the senior decision maker, if you like. But he or she delegates responsibility to, in our words, uh, the subordinates to deliver the plan. They do so knowing their people, knowing how much they can empower their people. They can do so knowing how much risk to take because they know their people and they know their limits, their boundaries. But it's also about the followers knowing that they can look back to the leader for support and clarification. So whilst you empower your people and you devolve your responsibility that doesn't abrogate your responsibility yourself it still sits with the decision maker and you're always there in a position of support so your people can always come back to you and say i need more clarification um this is going beyond my remit i need more resources whatever it may be so you don't yeah. you don't devolve that completely that makes perfect sense and i think it leads us on to neatly to the third element we mentioned which is the the service element of leadership because I guess for all of that to work, for the mission command to really work properly, you need that ethos of serving to lead. Yeah, so servant leadership is is very much tied up into the and monopolised by the the motto of the Royal Military Academy Sanders in, in in serve to lead. And ultimately, it's about putting your people first, putting the interests of your people before your own, and it, and inverts the what people often conceive of leadership to be with the leader at the top and the followers underneath, and it reverts that triangle, if you like. It's the leader serving their people. And ultimately what that delivers is trust, trust between leader and follower. And it's an old cliche, but trust is the glue that binds. And it's through trust that you're enabled to enact mission command. And that's where the link is between leadership and command. Um, Because of course, mission command is a command philosophy, but it's through leadership and the ability to work with people that enables you to really unleash the power of that mission command. That's really powerful, I think. Yeah, that aspect of this description of leadership and you know actually what it is and and how to make it work successfully and you touched on before and you mentioned that you know learning from failure is a key aspect of or has been a key aspect for the army in 
developing the way it does leadership. And given that the changes in the army have often been a response to the failure, what can the army do perhaps to anticipate and make changes that might be required in the future to try and avoid those failures in the first place? You know, is that even feasible or is that, you know, is that something that you're sort of wrestling with in the day job? And, um, you know, have you, have you come up with any, any ways of doing that? Because I'm sure that would also be something that would be of interest to people. I think the first thing to acknowledge is that you can never avoid failure. You can never avoid mistakes and errors. It's inherent in life. We're dealing with people and people make mistakes and sometimes they fail, by which I mean they deliberately go beyond the, the boundaries you set out. No organisation is perfect. And so I think what's important is you reduce the space for errors and failures to occur as much as possible. But you, you can never forecast the future. And ultimately, you know, people are complex beasts and they will let you down. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I think the important thing about failure is first and foremost, acknowledging it, owning it, taking responsibility for it, um, and holding yourself, your people, your, the organization to account for it. We haven't always been great at that, but as the book explores, a lot of our evolution, our positive evolution, has come by leaders driving positive change as a result of owning failures, whether it be on in peacetime or war. So I think that's the first thing is, is owning it and taking that responsibility. I mean, there's a number of initiatives that the army are undertaking right now. It recognizes that we need to do better with our culture. Um, if, for example, the army headquarters have established and we've been part of this work an army culture framework with a maturity model that sits underneath that and they're looking at sort of objectively measuring our culture through across issues such as um, safety security and unacceptable behavior as examples and be able to quantify where the issues are within the army and set them against a maturity model so we could target where we're going wrong more effectively there's a huge amount of work as many organizations um, have been going through the same process in the last 18 months or so on diversity and inclusion significant advances there I, I think it will take time and it's a constant evolution but it will take time for a lot of those elements to come in, in, into effect but you know the the change in the narrative and the conversation over the last uh, 18 months specifically have been significant I think and specifically on the leadership side and I alluded to this earlier we just had um, the executive committee of the army board sign off a 10-year project called project bramel which looks at leader development across the army and they've invested some resources in into that and and i i term this the next stage of professionalizing british army leadership and it's really about focusing on individuals because i think our collective capability will be far stronger clearly evidently if our if our individual um, soldiers and officers are more competent and more capable and particularly from our perspective you know, from a leadership perspective. So it's quite an ambitious project which involves you know, more doctrine, more research, um, improvements to training and education. But I think focusing more on the individual, making people more self-aware and, and having more bespoke training and education development pathways will be really advantageous. So I mentioned three initiatives there, quite significant initiatives. There are many others that are happening across the organisation as examples of how I say we're trying to close the gap on where we believe and there is space for errors and failures and where we need to get better. It's really interesting. And I know you mentioned as well that in terms of diversity, it's not just important to bring in people from different backgrounds, although that is obviously a big factor, but also focus on cognitive diversity. So getting people who think differently and I guess can challenge each other and, and so that you're avoiding things like groupthink in the way that maybe you might suffer from if you weren't focused on that. 
Absolutely. I'm becoming uh, rapidly passionate about the importance of cognitive diversity. I've been read um, quite a few papers and books on it recently, and I think it's critical for any effective organisation, particularly in the complex world we operate in. And one thing we often talk about in leadership is, and it, gets, it goes back to one of your original questions about what makes us unique. Our context is different. Everyone's context is different, any organisation. But it's important that you, you understand what that context is and how it's constantly changing. And I think cognitive diversity in any organisation is key to unlocking the real talent that exists and to be able to understand the environment in which you're operating and, and to operate effectively. I mean, you're absolutely right to point out that demographic diversity is important, not only because it's the right thing to do and society rightly demands it of all organisations, but it's also about enabling cognitive diversity and different trains of thought and different perspectives, particularly in our game, where we need to avoid that groupthink and that homogenous thinking, as you say. And um, the inclusion part is just as critical because unless people feel included, then you can't unleash the power of that cognitive diversity. And I think this is particularly where we have a challenge with our hierarchical nature of our organization. That's where good leadership comes in because good leadership on a day-to-day -day basis can flatten that hierarchy and it can create the conditions where people feel that they have got a voice, regardless of rank, regardless of experience, regardless of their views, providing they work within certain boundaries, but they need to bring that diversity of thinking to the table. And I passionately believe that it's through good leadership that sets the conditions for people to have a voice and to bring those views and perspectives. And that enables you to, to think more laterally as an organisation, to develop better plans, to deal with this complexity. And I guess when it comes to problem solving in on you know situations of uncertainty, which is often what you're asking people to do, you know you need people who can maybe think of different solutions and Absolutely. see problems differently. Absolutely, and um, you know ultimately we're in the business of crisis, of risk, mm. and uncertainty. You know that's why we exist. Yeah, and I guess it's part of that is in our DNA, the way we train, educate our people is how to deal with uncertainty. I hark back to my time as a company commander in Afghanistan in 2013. And a lot of our operations, of course, was intelligence driven and relevant to, to this audience, of course. And it was a really complex environment we were dealing with, multiple actors, multiple st different stakeholders. We had a clear mission, but in, unless we understood the environment and unless we were able to provide effective intelligence, not only just getting the right information in the first place, providing the, the best analysis on that, you know, our success or failure really was underpinned largely by the credibility and the quality of our intelligence. I was very fortunate to have um, an Incore intelligence team and, um, and they were superb. But for me, it was about setting the conditions so that they, they felt they had the latitude to not only gather the right information, they had the freedoms to analyse it to the best of their ability without me constraining their thinking and that they could bring their own cognitive diversity to, to the problem because it, there's a real dangers you know there's lots of biases that exist within all of us and your audience will know this better than I um, but it's about setting the conditions so that those in and, and they can be as lateral thinking as possible amid what was a very complex problem set. And that, that really neatly leads me on to a couple of questions I had really were more around some of the areas that we tend to focus on in this podcast which is around you know use of intelligence and a big part of that is obviously driven by the consumers of the intelligence people who have to use it on the ground so people who've been in the roles you've been in and perhaps british army leadership so how, how does that overlap perhaps with training around intelligence you know how do you equip officers and indeed all ranks to deal with uncertainty and often you know intelligence is a big part of hopefully making the situation less uncertain or at least you know giving you a bit more insight into what's going on but how do you you know go about training people perhaps to um 
to use those tools around them, whether it's intelligence or other means to find out what's going on? It's a broad question, but I think, as I say, it's it's really about setting the conditions for your people to deliver the best intelligence for you. Of course, they'll have their their own intelligence training, they'll have tools and techniques that they bring to analyze information they have. But if the conditions are not set for them to bring their own intelligence and their own sort of cognitive abilities to that problem, then um, you're going to have a less capable product as a, as a result. So I think it's about setting the right climate in first instance, about having teams that want to work with you. It's about your people knowing what you expect, what your intent is, it goes back to that whole mission command piece. Um, so they're clear on what the outputs are, what the intelligence is leading towards. It's about empowering your people to enable them to bring their talent and experience. But it's also about, and this is the critical thing, I think, is about enabling challenge. And this is a live conversation in the army at the moment about our challenge culture. And I still think we've got some way to go, but it's about accepting other views, expecting not necessarily critique, but just a respectful challenge whether it be the plan, it might even be to the mission, but certainly to current thinking, whatever that may be. I think it's important, and particularly within the intelligence community, that they ask the hard questions and that they're willing to stand up. And from my experience, particularly as an OC, commanding officer, and working in the Joint Force headquarters there as well in, in PGHQ, in all three instances, I've, um, I've been extremely impressed by the quality of our of our in corps personnel of all ranks there's some really quality um, lance corporals corp, corporals and sergeants that are willing to stand up and say sir i disagree or sir i've got a different point of view and i think that's really really important but it's only the leader that can enable the conditions to let those people enable those people to have the confidence to stand up and deliver that challenge it's critical that's really interesting and, and uh, yeah so i think valuable to hear you say that because i think too often Within organisations, not just within the military, there is that sort of culture of unwillingness to hear those alternative views or, or people sort of bringing in different perspectives on a problem to really understand what the potential options are. And you can see so many examples you know, throughout history of failure when actually people haven't listened to those different viewpoints or perspectives and they've fallen victim to their own biases, etc. But within that, those sort of areas of uncertainty, those situations you're in, how important is it as a leader to then instill confidence in the people you're leading or people you're serving as well who you know are obviously going to be aware that there's a lot of uncertainty and that the intelligence never gives you a perfect picture of what's going on no matter how good it may be how do you go about making a decision and having people wanting to help you sort of follow through on a course of action when perhaps there is that level of uncertainty how, so how do you how do you as a leader go about you know sharing that confidence or getting people to to believe that you're making the best decision that's available to you. I guess it goes back to being clear on your intent, what you're there to achieve. So everyone understands what they're working towards. I do think it's about in encouraging your team. And again, I mentioned this point about challenge. I think it's really important that they feel they have the confidence and freedom to challenge. And when they do, it's about accepting that. Even if you disagree, it's about accepting that and encouraging that because as soon as you, you can ask people to challenge you, you can ask people to raise alternative points of view. If as soon as they do, you slam them down, then you close the door on the whole group. Um, mm. And that's why it's important in, in setting those um, setting those conditions. But it's also been clear, I guess, that, and you've alluded to it, to it there, you're never going to have the perfect answer. You're never going to fully understand your environment, but it's about having that learning culture 
when things didn't work out as planned, the intelligence wasn't as effective or as reliable as you anticipated, is understanding why that was the case so that you can rectify that for the next time next time round. That's really interesting. And I think um, it would be useful to sort of also touch on another aspect of the, of the book that you've written about where you, you've included a chapter about the future. Mm-hmm. And so maybe to get your thoughts on on what the future holds, and you've talked about the evolution of leadership in the army and, and what that involves as, as well in terms of the work that you're doing in the Centre for Army Leadership. But yeah, maybe for our audience, you could talk a little bit about what you think the future challenges are and what, what are the things that you're trying to work on in terms of improving leadership? The first challenge for any leader, and this is alluded to in the book, is understanding what needs to change, what needs to evolve and what needs to endure. And culture being a good example, you know, that is constantly changing or wrong, constantly evolving based on changes in society. But there's plenty of what we draw on, the richness of that history that I spoke about right at the beginning that endures and and remains just as relevant. I think that one of the biggest challenges for leaders in any field, not just in the army, is the pace of change. And I go back to my point that one of the key roles of any leader is to be able to understand and interpret the context in which you're operating for your people. And given the the pace of change, the complexity of the current environment, whether you're talking political, economic, geopolitical, social, whatever it may be, or clearly the security environment in our world, it's changing at such pace I think that's going to be a challenge for any leader to really understand that context in which they're operating. I think from an army perspective, um, we need to continue to mature our culture. And I've already touched on that. I think our relationship with hierarchy is constantly evolving. And you look back, as I say, 200 years, the time of uh, Wellington, it was a very clear hierarchical structure. Everyone knew their place. Orders went down and people got on with what they were told to do. Enforced um, by corporal punishment as well, I suppose, which is a absolutely. thing of the past. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Discipline was very much order of the day and, you know, a clear hierarchical and um, status driven organization. And you can see through, and chapter one deals with some of this history, you see how that, that hierarchy still exists, but the relationship with the hierarchy and authority and command has evolved and flattened. And, uh, and one of the key things about leadership, uh, we say now, is you know, it's absolutely, it's an all ranks business. Everyone has a responsibility. And I think that that relationship with hierarchy will continue to evolve. And it has to, because increasingly in the current and future operating environments, we're going to be relying on our junior commanders more and more. You know, we talk about dispersed forces, complex battle spaces, and and it's and the decision makers are going to be increasingly junior in rank and experience and the further forward in complex environments. So um, I think that how we lead in those sort of environments or those conditions is going to consistently evolve. And I think the other the other aspects and you know you could probably have an, an hour-long podcast on the future itself one of the other aspects is the changes in society and how the army continues to evolve at pace in line with that and, and one example which again is briefly explored in the book is cross-generational leadership i'm always hesitant slightly nervous about going into too much detail about generational trends because ultimately we're all individuals and i think we can rely on such trends too much at times but there is an inevitably differences between the Gen Z coming into the workforce or being, being in our workforce now up to the age of 25. So our privates and our junior NCOs and junior officers are very much in that category. And vice, the five other generations that exist in the army and any other organisation at the moment. I think that intergenerational leadership is going to be a challenge, but also an opportunity going forward in any organisation. I thought that was a really interesting aspect of the book that I was reading through it. That you, it's a sort of thread that runs throughout it. 
is your thoughts on the relationship between the army and society and how that is evolving and, and how that's something that the army really need, does clearly focus on quite a lot and thinks about a lot. So yeah, that's it's interesting to hear you talk about that and also to read about your sort of thinking in the book about where that might go in future. Absolutely. I mean, the, the, the army doesn't ex- sit in isolation of mm. society. There's certain aspects of the army that, that are unique and are different by the very nature of our profession, but we serve the society that we are from. We respond to our political uh, masters who are put there by wider society. You know, if society does not trust us, we ultimately we lose our license to operate. So it's absolutely critical, not only because it's the right thing to do, but in terms of an operational capability, we need to remain in lockstep with um, society. But it's also about recruiting and retaining the right talent, our people, which ultimately sit at the heart of our organisation. Is that something that the, you know you think in terms of challenges the army's got to deal with that there needs to be more focus on in terms of? You've talked about the culture of leaders needing to serve their people, that the army needs to do better in terms of looking after people generally, in terms of welfare, in terms of things like accommodation, even even things like pay, because, you know, it's it's difficult in this environment we're in now where you're having to compete for recruits and you are having to maybe offer things that weren't there before that are going to appeal to people um, a bit more. Otherwise, you're going to potentially start to struggle to recruit. Is that part of the thinking as well in terms of evolving leadership? Yeah, absolutely is. I think it goes beyond broader than um, leadership because some of the issues you spoke about there absolutely needed to be addressed. And it's easy to criticise our organisation and and soldiers and officers do say, well, it's people are a critical capability. Why is the accommodation not not (laughs) perfect? Why can't we have more pay, please, and and more stability? And I absolutely get that. So it's a a constant challenge. And dare I say it's inevitable as a public service. You know, there are certain limitations on our ability to provide everything that is required. I'm not making excuses. I think that's just a reality. Mm. Um, But the Army, you know, I look at our senior leads and they genuinely have people's interests at heart they are trying to do the very best for our individuals and the army as a whole in what is inevitably a challenging environment but there is more we can do and i would say this but it takes leadership to drive that forward Mm. this has been a a really fascinating discussion and i've I've really enjoyed reading the book as well i'd I'd fully recommend it to anyone um, who's interested in in the topic of leadership there's so much to take away from it but from your perspective and for those people who are not in the military who might read this book what would you hope would be the main points they might take away from it interesting question but i actually think that different people will take different things away from the book Mm. because what we try to avoid and i'll try to um, skirt your question (laughs) what we try to avoid was having taking the approach of you know five steps to success or 10 ways to be a better leader and to try and simplify it. It, it was deliberately more discursive and more contextual and sort of a, a slightly deeper and richer understanding of the breadth of leadership and the challenges and the tensions. And by doing so, I'm hoping that different readers will come at this book from different perspectives and therefore take different lessons away. That said, getting back to what I think you really want me to say is what we are, what are the core takeaways and I think you've already highlighted some of those and, and wrapped up into some of the universal lessons and said at the core of what leadership means to us as an organisation. I think anyone that leads by their values, by what they believe is the right thing to do. If people lead by their values and what um, what is important to them and what sits at the core of their, their beliefs, you lead with purpose, you care for your people, you put your people's interests first and you empower your people through good leadership, I think we'll all be in a better place. 
That's, that's a, a brilliant note to end on. And I think the, the challenge, I guess, for most organisations is making that happen, actually enacting it. And we talked a little bit about that earlier when we talked about people, leaders being examples for those around them. And so that those kinds of words, you know, you see a lot of companies and organisations where they've got values and they've got a mission and they'll plaster it on the wall and, you know, everyone can see it. But actually enacting it, actually making it happen, it's down to the, it's down to individual leaders to do, isn't it, on a day-to-day basis? It's day-to-day, it's in and out of work. You know, it's it's at all times, it's on and off the field of players, we say. It's got to be part of who you are. It's got to be the character. It's part of your character and who you are. You can't just turn it on when you come to work and, and live by these wonderful values. It's got to be part of who you are inside, absolutely. And it's constant and you're learning every day and, and you get things right, you get things wrong. Um, but it's paying, you know, it's, it's paying attention to what you know is the right thing to do every, every day and, and building those habits so that when it matters most, leadership is endemic. That's brilliant. Langley, it's been it's been great talking to you. I've really enjoyed this and um, I've loved the book. Um, I think you mentioned it was, it's a very discursive book. I found it to be incredibly thoughtful and thought provoking as well. I mean, almost on every page, I was sort of stopping and, and taking away an important point from from the book. So, um, I, I, you know, I'm I'm somebody who's a, a big fan of books about leadership and management, and something I've inherited from my from my dad. But um, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it really is a good read, and I've, I wholeheartedly recommend it to people. And it is out now, isn't it? It's published already. It is out now. Yeah, ready, for, ready for sale, audio and um, and and uh, hardback. So yeah, brilliant. Thank you very much for your support, Terry. Really appreciate it. Thanks for joining us this week on the world of intelligence. Make sure to visit our website, janes.com podcast, where you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, so you'll never miss an episode.